the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Tuesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about church, questions about something going on in your life, anything and everything. All you have to do is provide the phone call. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KLS, KSLR, got it backwards, KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, so we got nothing going on except the program. So let's get to some questions while we await your phone calls. Uh, the first question that came in today is from Laura from our email inbox. And she asks, what are your thoughts on biblical tithing? Are we mandated to give 10% of our gross income to the church? My son said we don't have to give 10% of our money to the church and should give what we can. I told him many churches are preaching 10% and always talking about money, and so they have to be right. What are your thoughts? Laura, um, this is a question that I get a lot uh, on this program, and um, um, uh, it's a thoughtful question, so I want to give you um, an answer that, that is thoughtful, at least I hope it is. Uh, I'm with your son, first of all. Uh, we don't have to give anything to the church. We get to give. There's a huge difference between have to and get to, I like to say, because it's easy to remember, got to and get to. It's a huge difference. One is an obligation, and the other is a privilege. And um, the idea, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians says that, that we should give not under compulsion, not having enforced. I would add not because we feel guilty if we don't, um, but we give based on what God has done for us. And, of course, tithing, which means a tenth. Uh, tithing uh, is an Old Testament principle. It's a law. Uh, Jesus talked about tithing only in one regard. He was talking to Jews under the law. And he said, you tithe, and it's right that you do so. But remember, he was talking to Jews. His, Jew, his ministry was very Jewish. So um, tithing is simply not. And, and, and I know a lot of pastors, I love a lot of pastors who, who, who would communicate this differently. But they believe that tithing is the, the thing that we should do, uh, 10%. But regardless of their heart or their motive, there is no biblical instruction at all for New Testament Christians to give 
There's just simply none at all. It's never mentioned in the New Testament. The only instruction for giving is to give on your increase and to do so generously and with a cheerful heart. Now, here's, Laura, the thing that I want you to think about logically. If under the law, a law that was um, a failure because it condemned us, if giving under the law was 10%, how much more should we give who are not under law but under grace? We've been rescued. We've been redeemed. How much more should we give? And I think the idea, the problem is that we get in this, well, 10% is the minimum. I don't want to give more than the minimum. So, okay, I'll give 10%. But I want you to think about it this way, Laura. Um, take a dollar out of your purse and and um, maybe one day go break it up into dimes and say, okay, Jesus, here's one dime for you and nine dimes for me. Does that seem appropriate? After all that God has done for us, does that seem even reasonable? No, the Apostle Paul says that we're to give everything that we are, our time, our talent, and our treasure to the Lord. Because everything that we have came from him and it ought to be spent or used on him. And under grace, what we should do is simply say, Jesus, how much of your money, not not nine for me and one for you. But Lord, here's ten for you. What do you want me to do with it? That's what stewardship is. And so there is no biblical mandate to give 10%, period. Period. And yet we do it. Now the question is, why do so many churches, and you brought it up, many churches are preaching 10% and always talking about money, so they have to be right. Well, why do they do that? Well, I think it's because they themselves don't trust God. If I can compel, if I've got a big church and I can compel everybody to give 10%, I'm going to be getting a lot of money in. And then I don't have to trust God. I just have to trust the people. And they've already signed a membership agreement, a covenant that says they're going to give 10%. So I can plan and I can budget. And I never have to walk out into that dangerous place with Jesus where I don't know what's coming in. And I think the pastors in this community who are preaching that the tithe is an obligation for the New Testament Christian, I think two things. One, they do not understand their Bibles, at least in this regard, and I'm not being unkind to them. Secondly, and I want everybody to understand, this is a non-essential. There are differences of opinion on this. But opinions are based on our fear rather than our faith. And so we simply shouldn't do it. I can tell you here, Laura, at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we have never asked for a dime. We do not pass a plate or an offering bucket or box or hat or anything else. Uh, and we only talk about money when it comes to the passages about money in our Bibles because we study through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've never asked anybody for anything. We've never let our needs be known. And believe me, we're like every other church. We have a lot of needs, but we never let them be known. And rather than trying to make people feel bad or compel them to give 10%, I've found over my 27 years here that Jesus is much better at encouraging them to give if we just leave it up to him. So, Laura, that's our position here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, I believe with all of my heart that is the biblical position and I think the reason so many churches preach a 10% is because it makes it easier. They themselves then don't have to trust God because they can just sort of put that burden on the people in the body. Good question. Thank you very, very much, Laura. And I hope that answers it completely for you. Here is a question. This one is from Gilbert from our email inbox. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. I'm a fairly new Christian. A couple months ago, I visited my family in Dallas, and we went to Tony Evans' church. Uh, it was a nice church. It, I, and let me just interrupt here, um, Gilbert. Uh, I've never been inside the church, but Paul and I, we were in Dallas last year, and uh, we drove by to look at it. It wasn't during a time when it was church, so we didn't get to go in. But it is a nice church. It, it appears to me, now I don't know this for sure, but it appears to me that it, it's got uh, two sanctuaries, one on each side of the street, which in that neighborhood, it's a residential neighborhood. 
Um, It's brilliant if that's the case. They they can afford it, certainly. Um, Helps them manage the parking. And uh, Dr. Evans would just have to go from one side to the other while one crowd is filling in one church, one side of the street. The other one is emptying on the other side. And, And it's very, very functional. I was really, really impressed by it. Let me go on. Uh, he says, before we he started preaching, there was a show with women aerial dancing, the choir playing really loud, and um, other things going on. It did not set well with me about people passing around the offering plate. I really like Tony Evans' teachings. However, the children seem, I'm sorry, the church seems more like an attraction than traditional church. My cousin said, this is how all the mega churches are. I was taken back because I'm from a small town. Is it okay for churches to be like this? My cousin said that mega churches are really blessed. Is this true? Um, it's not true. It's not true that just because a church is big, um, Gilbert, it's not true that just because they're big, they're blessed by God. There's a lot of huge churches. The biggest church in the United States is certainly not blessed by God. Uh, It's just a man who tells people what they want to hear. And let me say this. It's really simple to have a big church, have a lot of people. You just tell them what they want to hear. And and most of the mega churches are performing churches or they they soft sell the Bible teaching. Um, um, don't talk about sin much. So no, it's not true that just because a church is big that it's blessed. And I think we really need to understand that. Now, a couple of things about Tony Evans' church. I am a big Tony Evans fan. I think he is a wonderful, gifted Bible teacher. Um, he has been faithful for many, many years. His his ministry has um, uh, that I'm aware of been without a single hint of of uh, any dishonesty or problems in terms of integrity. Um, he has been used by the Lord marvelously, and um, um, I'm just a fan. Um, uh, he is a godly man, and he is, as I said again, a gifted Bible teacher. Having said that, um, the aerial dancing, uh, that's more cultural. A lot of black churches uh, have uh, dancing through the, the, the sanctuary, um, swirling ribbons. And, and, and I'm just, I, I don't think that's really worship. Um, um, uh, I, we don't, I said to the previous caller question that we don't pass an offering plate here. Uh, most churches do. There's nothing sinful or wrong about that. Um, but um, sometimes, um, and I've not been in Tony Evans' church personally, um, in mega churches, a lot of times the, the the worship portion seems more like a show than it does the worship of God, and I think that is a concern. Again, Tony Evans, at least, and I don't know because I said I haven't seen their worship personally, and and that's never included on his radio program or his TV programs. Um, Tony Evans at least balances. Uh, whatever's going on at the beginning with the solid teaching of the word. Now, he doesn't do it like I do, um, but but I can promise you this. He does it way better than I do. And, and his people are getting the full counsel of God, and they are hearing gospel truth. And um, he's not um, shy about um, calling people out when they're living in sinful lifestyles. So... Um, I'm I'm feeling you here in terms of mega churches and how often it's a big show and it seems so carnal to me, uh, but that's not the case at uh, Oakland Bible Fellowship, which is Tony Evans Church. So thank you for that, Gilbert. I appreciate it very very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to Caesar on line one from San Antonio. Caesar, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Uh, my question is about Matthew 3.15. Um, I'll read it real quick. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So when I read that quickly, I think about the word righteousness, and I think about what's the opposite of righteousness. It would be unrighteousness. So I'm like thinking, like, was Jesus implying that he was unrighteous before the baptism? 
But then that can't be because Jesus is truly man and truly God. So I just wanted to see if you could break that down for me. Uh, and just thank you for your answer in yeah. advance. Thank you, Caesar. I can do that. Very, very much appreciate the phone call. Um, just so the people in the audience know, this is when Jesus appeared at the Jordan River and uh, was going to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John uh, looked at him and said, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus, can you imagine what a difficult spot that was for John the Baptist to be in? Now, they knew each other. Uh, it's not that they lived together. They were super, super close, but but they were cousins. And, and um, Mary and Elizabeth, John's mother, uh, were close. And now we've got the man that John is proclaiming is near. The kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. Uh, and all of a sudden, God shows up at the river, and he says, I should be baptized by you instead? And Jesus said, let it be so now. Do it this way. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. I think this is better translated, uh, Caesar. Um, let uh, It is proper for us to do this to fulfill righteousness for all rather than to fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus at the beginning of his active ministry. Remember, uh, he goes into the water to be baptized. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he begins his active ministry. And this is Jesus identifying with sinners. That's all it is. There's no hint that Jesus is unrighteous. We, we know certainly that he had nothing to repent of. This is, as we all know, a baptism of repentance. Um, uh, that's what John was proclaiming. Um, his was a baptism that said, get ready because the king is coming. Now the king appears, and it's not because he needs to be baptized or he needs to repent. It says, let's do this. I'm identifying for the sins of all. And we know that Jesus turned our sin into his righteousness on the cross at Calvary. So, Caesar, that's all that was being done there. And every time I, I read this passage, I just think of what a moment this must have been for John. Can you imagine? We also know that at the end of this baptism, that the voice came from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I think the only two people who heard it, now others heard the noise, but I think the only two people who heard this and um, um, understood it were Jesus and John in that particular case. So uh, that was just the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. It was like the Father in heaven saying, go, now's the time. And from that point forward, we know that Jesus walked in the power of the Holy Spirit, given the Spirit without measure because he was without sin, without a sin nature. And I think from that moment forward, Caesar, uh, everything Jesus did was led by the Spirit of God, the voice of the Father working through the Spirit. And I also would add that it's interesting to me, chapter 4 begins with this word, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Isn't that an amazing thing? The very first thing that Jesus had to endure when his ministry became active, when the countdown to Jerusalem began, was to be all alone, tempted by the devil. He was there for 40 days without food or water. Now, obviously, that's supernatural sustenance. Um, and the devil came to him when he was at his weakest. So that's what that was doing. It's not a hint or, or any indication at all that Jesus was in need of a baptism of repentance or that he didn't have any righteousness. It was to identify with fallen man who did need to repent. And that was just sort of um, sort of like the coin toss at a Super Bowl. You call it, you you can take the ball, you're going to defer, whatever. You get to choose what you're going to do. Well, that was the beginning of the greatest ministry in the history of the world. Thank you, Caesar. I appreciate the question very, very much. Here is a question from Garrett. He says, Martin Luther was a hater of Jews. How could he be in heaven? Um, Garrett, these are, these are questions that, that nobody can answer. 
Um, who are we to judge another man's servant? The Bible says we can certainly judge his behavior. And in doing that, we can say that his anti-Semitism, which was well known, it is well known. Uh, his writings on the issue are, are prolific. Uh, he hated Jews. They were murderers of, of God. And, and he n- never relented on that. Um, and yet we know that God used him. Uh, he's the one that started the Reformation. He's the one that took a stand against the Catholic Church. Um, and you ask, how could he be in heaven? Uh, as a believer, he was in heaven justified by faith, which is the stand that he took, of course, uh, in opposition to the Catholic Church, which cost Martin Luther a lot. So I don't think there's any doubt Martin Luther was a believer, but he was an imperfect believer. I also want to be clear, Garrett, to say here that uh, prejudice uh, such as the prejudice he had against Jews is utterly evil, completely sinful, and never, never tolerated by God. So um, who knows? Who knows? It's interesting that he could read the book of Romans and understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone um, um, and, and yet not read the Bible and understand uh, Jesus' um, teachings in the Gospel, especially the Gospel of John, about Israel being um, the, 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 the vine, the, the tree. We're, we're, we're the grafted in branches, uh, but, but they're the branch. They're the ones uh, for, through whom all of this started. So um, you are right. He hated Jews. Uh, his writings are blistered with anti-Semitism, and that's evil and it's wicked. Uh, and yet I'm confident that we're going to see Martin Luther in heaven. How we balance that, I don't know. Today, Garrett, my uh, my heart, I, I, I'm, I'm actually, my heart is broken. It wasn't broken and now I'm okay. My, my heart is broken. Uh, I was listening to a, a man who I I think is the best communicator I've ever heard. The best communicator I've ever heard. And um, somebody sent me a link uh, to what he's doing now. And um, his life is just so empty. It's so without value. Uh, And yet this was a man who was used by God to do amazing things. And I, 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 I watched who he used to be, what he used to look like, and now, after being overtaken by horrible sin, see what he's doing now and see the emptiness and the futility of his life. And it absolutely broke my heart. And I think he'll be in heaven. Grace is a wonderful thing, but only God knows. We know for sure, Paul writes to the Galatians, that God knows those who are his. He will not be mocked or deceived. And Garrett, we've got to leave situations like this to the Lord. He is the judge. Uh, all we can do is look at the behavior and we can judge whether or not it represents God correctly or misrepresents him. And in this case, Martin Luther certainly misrepresents the Lord. And I think would had a lot to answer for when Jesus came to get him and take him to heaven. Here's a question from Monroe. He says, should a husband and wife seek to partner in ministry rather than serving alone? Uh, Monroe, yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Now, let me say there is this exception. Uh, Husbands and wives have different gifts. And so there are times when they're going to serve alone as the Lord leads them. But, But they still should be partnering in one another's ministry. I can't do what I do without Paula. I would be just the most pitiful person in the world trying to do what I do without Paula, whom God gave to me to complement my weaknesses with her strengths. Likewise, she can't do what God's asked her to do without me. And so to partner in ministry, we've been partners here at Calvary Chapel San Antonio for 27 years. And in those 27 years, um, we've stood shoulder to shoulder through unbelievable things good and bad, uh, blessed and difficult. Uh, and as a result, we're, we're closer than we have ever been. Still, every time you get the opportunity to minister together, you ought to do that. 
So whatever the serve is, one of the things I like to do here, Monroe, is especially with fairly new people, uh, we like to get husbands and wives involved together in the usher ministry. Gives them a chance to get to know people, but people get to know them. They can do it together, and people start seeing them as a couple, and, and their, their hearts become knit together in the work that God has called them to. So, yes, I think a husband and wife should find something that they can partner in ministry together. Uh, Paula and I, before we ever came to Texas, our very first ministry together was uh, teaching in a nursing home. Wonderful ministry. God taught us so much. Paula did what she did. She sang, and I did what I did. I taught the Bible. And all the time, God was knitting our hearts together, not only for, for one another in Christ, but, but we were ministering together, learning uh, together about how to really care for people the way the Lord wants them to be cared for. So, Monroe, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Husband and wife should seek to partner in ministry all the time. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left on the Tuesday edition of the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question uh, that just came in from our email inbox. And let me just warn you in advance, I'm going to upset people with my answer to this one. Um, but but uh, hold on long enough to hear my heart. Um, he says, Pastor Ron, hi, Pastor Ron, my aunt and uncle are professing Christians. They started going to a Victory Outreach Church. They've gone there before, um, in parentheses. He says they've been there, they met there five years ago because they both were recovered from drugs. I've been there about 15, or I went there about 15 years ago. I was not saved at the time, but I remember going. From what I remember, it was complete chaos. All of them were speaking in tongues, and it seemed very demonic. The pastor was yelling at us, just chaos. My aunt and uncle started going there about a month ago. I told him that he should stay away from them. He kind of got offended and said that Victor Outreach has done so much and have saved so many people. I told him that they should leave that church. Am I wrong for doing that? Um, short answer is no, you're not wrong for doing that. And please bear with me while I explain hi first or explain why. Uh, first, churches don't save anybody. The Holy Spirit saves people, and he saves people in good churches. He saves them in bad churches. He saves them in AA groups or 12-step groups, and there's nothing biblical about um, um, 12-step groups. God loves people, and he's in the business of saving, and he will reach down and save a lot of people. Now, here's the problem with Victory Outreach. You're right. It is charismatic chaos. Um they don't function, their church services don't function um, under the order prescribed to us in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and that's why there's just complete chaos. I can only imagine as an unbeliever when you went there and to see all of that, you must have thought these people are crazy. They don't teach the Bible. They yell the Bible. They preach the Bible. Uh, there's a great emphasis, and this is one of the good things, on, on evangelism and, and winning people to Christ. Uh, but, but to bring somebody to Christ without teaching them how to follow Jesus is really, really unhealthy. Whenever a church, and it's not just Victory Outreach, but, but all these charismatic, crazy charismatic churches, and again, I want to, Say we are a charismatic church here at Calvary Chapel. We believe, I believe, that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, and we operate in those gifts. However, um, when when services are intended to appeal to people's emotions, by definition, they're carnal. By definition, 
It's carnality. And again, you appeal to the emotions. Well, when your carnal emotions are going to take over, it's simply not healthy. And there's not going to be any solid instruction. And believe me, nobody needs instruction more than new Christians do. Okay, having said all that, here's the thing that is the worst about Victory Outreach. They never teach their people how to live in the freedom that Christ provided. Galatians 5.1 says it's for freedom we've been set free. And and they keep them in bondage. It's like a 12-step group. They keep them once an addict, always an addict, and they've always got that hanging over your head. And they try to compel obedience from people. And we can't compel obedience from people. It's that simple. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, and we never properly introduce them to the real Holy Spirit. As bad as that is, even worse is to see how they use these people up. People come in, imagine how grateful they are. They're finally not under the the, the, the bondage of drugs, at least for the moment. Um, and so they're told, okay, got to work hard. Gotta, and they keep them busy all day. And you'll see Victory Outreach people all over the city on street corners soliciting money. And they do it with fear and intimidation. If you're not doing this, you're not serving God. If you're not serving God, you're going to go back to drugs. They never, ever teach them how to live with the freedom that Christ gave. And I just think that's absolutely horrible. And by horrible, I I mean uh, there's so much to answer for. And the result is a lot of those people, they don't persevere in their walk with the Lord. And I think those churches like that are going to be held accountable for those people's well-being when they stand before Jesus at the famous seat of Christ. Are they saved? Yes. Um, um, Freddie actually started the church uh, a long time ago, and and uh, I think it, like most churches, started off with the right intent. Um, but remember, these drug recovery or alcohol recovery-based ministries uh, have no depth to them at all. So I hope that makes sense to you. Um, but I agree with you, and, and I would not want anybody that I care about going to one of those churches. Here is a question from Kathy. Pastor, why would Pharaoh be held accountable when he did not have the free will to do anything else? It was God who hardened his heart. Kathy, you need to read this story. You need to really read the story closely because what you will find in the story of Pharaoh is that Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times. Over and over, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he was accountable. He was accountable because he knew that the miracles, even his own uh, sorcerers, magicians, and advisors said that, that, that Moses' God is God. This can only be the hand of God, and we can't do anything. And, and he, would, he would give in a little bit, and then he would change his mind. Um, the next time he would give in, and then he would send his troops back after them. Um, Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times. And finally, you get to that place where it says God hardened his heart. And what that meant was God simply gave him over to the choices he had made. He gave him over to his own heart, to his own mind. And so what Pharaoh did was do exactly what he wanted to do. And these trials, these plagues revealed who he really was. So it's not that God didn't love Pharaoh, for God so loved the world, including Pharaoh. Um, it's just that he knew Pharaoh was never going to turn. And Pharaoh crossed the line, a point of no return. And his heart then just grew harder and harder. And God just left him alone. But make no mistake, Pharaoh was given every opportunity, every opportunity to do the right thing and be right with God. But he chose not to. So uh, Pharaoh's held accountable, just like every single man and woman who's ever lived is accountable for the choices that we make. Kathy, one of the things that's always a red flag for me with questions like that 
is you might be being influenced by a Reformed church, a Calvinist church that says, you know, uh, God chooses who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven. And if that's the case, be careful because you're not in a healthy, well-balanced church. Here's a question from McKenzie. Uh, Should a Christian join a union when the possibility of striking to get better pay might be possible? Uh, McKenzie, I don't very often get questions I've never received before uh, after doing this for nine years. This is a question I've never had before. And it requires a lot of thought and it requires a lot of prayer. I know wonderful Christians who were members of unions. Um, One of my elders, one of the most godly men I've ever known was a local union president. Uh, Another man in my church right now is a vice president of union, and God is using him in that place uh, to minister to people. So um, um, I think this is a question between you and the Lord. Anything not of faith is sin. Uh, I personally... Um, I like the idea of personal responsibility and I wouldn't want to work at a union place. Um, um, I have the free will to take a job or to reject a job. And if I take a job and the job is unfair or the pay is unreasonable, um, I'm free to go out that door and get another job. Um, And yet there was a time in our nation when uh, these unions, uh, especially trade unions, they were necessary because people were being taken advantage of. And I mean being taken advantage of in, in, by being put in life-threatening situations where safety and things like that were, were a, a huge concern. So uh, I, I personally would never strike. Um, if I can no longer work in a place, I would quit. And I would go find another place and say, okay, Jesus, we got to go somewhere else. Um, and yet I cannot fault Christians who are part of a union um, and want the benefits of a union and want to stick together and get the unity of a union um, uh, for better working conditions. So uh, I just think, McKinsey, this is a, a, a question that is between uh, you and God. Uh, personally, I couldn't do it, uh, but um, I, I find no fault in people that do? That's a wonderful question. Thank you very, very much. I know uh, quite a few professional athletes, and, uh, you know, they've got to be a part of a union to play. And I think that's unfair, and yet I know they are, and and um, I know that's a struggle that they've had as well. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Eddie asks, if our sins are forgiven, why do we need to ask forgiveness or for forgiveness when we pray? Well, Eddie, a couple of reasons. And let me just give you the the one compelling overriding reason. We do it because we are told by God to do it. We're told by God. So obedience is the reason that we pray or we ask for forgiveness when we pray so that our prayers can be heard. Now, our sins are forgiven when we meet Jesus, when we're truly born again. Now, keep in mind, Eddie, there's a lot of people who say they're born again, but they've really never met Jesus. Their life has never changed. They've never truly turned from sin. But for the believer who really turns to Jesus, asks for forgiveness, and wants to follow him, um, our sins at that moment are forgiven. Past sins, present sins, and future sins. We are justified, just as if I'd never sinned is a good way to remember that. And so we're going to stand before the Lord, and we're going to be judged. But as we walk through this life, and we mess up from time to time, we sin, our fellowship with the Holy God is broken. That's why John writes in 1 John 1, verse 9, he says, uh, if we confess our sins, that means if we agree with God about sin, what it is, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful uh, to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And remember the context of John's uh, first epistle is having fellowship with God. So, Eddie, here's what happens. 
Uh, we're saved, we're going to heaven, our sins are forgiven, but but we do this terrible thing and we try to just kind of pretend like it didn't happen or like everything's okay. God says, no, he can't do that. Your fellowship is broken. That means he can't hear your prayer. That means you've lost your access to God. It doesn't mean that he's left you because he'll never leave you or forsake you. It doesn't mean that you're not saved because you are. But what it means is that unless we're walking in purity and holiness, uh, we can't approach God. And so we ask for forgiveness so that that broken fellowship is repaired. And that's why we need to do it. Let me add one thing here, Eddie. This is an area that as Christians, we need to keep very, very short accounts in terms of our repentance with the Lord. This is something that we need to do daily. We need to do it throughout the day. The minute we sin, uh, you could get angry. You could lose your temper. You could hold on to unforgiveness. uh, You could use bad language. Um, uh, you could give in to lust, all these kinds of things. Uh, the minute you do it, the Spirit of God will convict you. That's when we need to repent of our sin so that our fellowship with Jesus doesn't remain broken. So this is about relationship. This is about access to God, the ability to hear from the Lord, the ability to hear from the Word of God. Uh, but it's not about salvation. And believe me, we all want to keep the lines of communication with the Lord open for sure. Thank you, Eddie. Appreciate the question. Here is a question from Pablo. Why don't modern churches help with widows and single moms? They ask for money but don't help people with it. Um, Pablo, that's a sweeping generalizations, uh, generalization there because uh, many, many, many churches are very generous to help people. Um, our church, and again, it's the only one I can speak authoritatively for, um, our church, uh, we spend a great deal of money in benevolence. Um, we we actually seek out single moms and their children. I, I believe they're the modern-day widows and orphans of the Old Testament. Um, and we seek them out. We want to make sure they're okay, that they're doing well. And it's really important that we don't just sort of point a finger at churches um, uh, because churches are very generous, typically speaking. Uh, We don't, and I don't think any church does, we don't trumpet our generosity. Um, You know, it's not not our job to, to let the church know who's getting help and who's not getting help. But I can promise you, Pablo, there are a lot of people who are getting help at our church, and I'm certain... That's the case in other churches as well. One of the comments you say, again, generally broad brushing here, you say they ask for money. Um, but, but Pablo, we don't. I've never asked for a dime here at Calvary Chapel. Um, and um, um, so, so just be careful of those kind of sweeping generalizations. Let me also say this, and then we'll move on to the next question. Pablo, it is my dream. My dream. We've never passed an offering plate. We've never passed a bucket or a bag or a hat or anything else. Um, But it is my dream one day to be able to pass out a bucket around the congregation, um, not for people to give, but for people to take from it if they need help. I would love to be able to do that. Maybe one of these days the Lord will bless my heart and and give us enough money so I can say, look, we never have to take an offering again. We never have to, to, I don't want you to worry about giving money to the church. You know, Moses had to stop the Israelites. Oh, we've got enough. Don't give anymore. From the moment I read that as a brand new Christian, I wanted to be in that position. And I would love to be able to pass the bucket around with cash in it and tell people, be fair, be honest, but take what you need. I'd love to be able to do that, Pablo. So, uh, again, be careful of these sweeping generalizations because uh, uh, while there's churches that don't help out people, for sure, uh, I think they're in a minority. So, thank you for the question. Here is a question from Joseph. He says, do you think Ananias and Sapphira are in hell? (laughs) Um, you know, Joseph, I've changed my mind about this over the years. There's no way of knowing. Remember, God is the judge, and only God knows their hearts. Um, I, I used to think, yep, 
They're, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God killed them and they're not in heaven. Uh, I no longer think that. The, the, the longer I've gotten to know Jesus and the, the more infinite his grace becomes to me. And that's one of the great things about hanging out with Jesus and spending time in the word. Uh, he gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But but um, um, I, I now believe that they were believers who took the bait from Satan. They didn't know they were under attack. Uh, it was Satan's attempt to, to destroy the church from within, the very first attempt to destroy the church from within. The, the All the attempts to destroy the church up to that point had come from, from without. Uh, and I think this is one of those things where um, John will later write, there is a sin that leads unto death. And I think this is it. I think God was was making a one-time only statement. This is how I'm going to protect my church. This is how I feel about hypocrisy in the church or people that lie to God who are Christians. Um, not because he, I mean, if he was still killing people, the church would be a lot holier now. But in this particular case, I think he was simply making a point. Um, woe to those who would try to destroy my church from within. And Ananias and Sapphira, for all the wrong reasons, they saw how Barnabas was received when he came in and, and with the, the property that he sold, laid it at the apostles' feet and said, this money is yours. Use it for the kingdom of God. And everybody just was so carried away with emotion at that moment because it was hard in the new church. And I think at this particular point, Ananias and Sapphira started thinking, you know, I, I want people to think that way about me. And so they went together and they came up with a plan. And the plan was, well, we're going to sell our stuff. We'll say we sold it for this much, but we're going to keep half of it for ourselves. Now, if Ananias and Sapphira, Joseph, had come to Peter and said, well, we sold some stuff too, and here's half of it. We want the church to have half. That would have been wonderful. That would have been so generous. But instead, they demonstrated that their heart was in the wrong place. Their motives were wrong. They weren't giving to God. They were giving to get the recognition that Barnabas had. And I think that's a sin. I think it was such a critical time in the history of the church that they paid with their lives for committing that sin. There is a sin that leads unto death. And I think that's what Ananias and Sapphira did. And I think they're in heaven. I think they're going to be or have been with Jesus now um, for nearly 2,000 years. Thank you very, very much. I think we've got time for one more um, question today. This one is from Melody. She says, is it okay for me as a girl to teach the Bible to kids? Melody, yes, 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 yes. If you're called to do that, what a wonderful gifting it is. And what a blessing it is. So, of course, it's okay. We have here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we have a whole bunch of women who have teaching ministries. They're not pastors. They're not put in positions of authority. But because they're gifted to teach, they have teaching ministries, whether it be to kids or, in some cases, adults. Um, and, and yes, yes, if God has given you that gift... Use it and be glory, or bring glory to God in the process um, because it's what he wants you to do. And there is zero prohibition at all against women teaching the Bible and even in some cases to men in small group Bible studies. So um, never to be a leader, never to be in a position of authority over a man, but... Certainly, yes, it's okay to use your gift to teach. And um, believe me, Melody, it is a wonderful gift. And it will produce a wonderful, fruitful life for you. More fulfilling than you can imagine. Now, since we're running out of time, Melody, let me just tell you two things. First, whenever you're teaching, make sure first to check your own heart. Make sure that what you're going to be telling others to do, and that's what teaching is, Teach what the Word says, what it means, and then how we can apply it in our lives. Make sure that you're practicing what you preach. It's that simple. Um, you know, if, if you've got foul language coming, you can't talk about walking in holiness. So just make sure that your heart is right 
in that particular case. The second thing I want to say, Melody, is that um, be a good steward of God's Word. Love it. Fall more in love with it. Devour it. And by that I mean just pour your heart and soul in it. Your Bible should be your best friend. And when, in fact, uh, you're pouring yourself into the study of the Word of God, God then will bring the Word out of you, uh, led by the the Spirit of God, uh, and the, the changes that you will see in people's lives, including your own, will be so obvious to everyone that it's just one of those things that you want to do. So, Melody, yes, it's good. Use your gift and do it for all your worth for your glory. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. Um, oh, we have, uh, uh, my producer, we have our own Melody, who's 14, who's been teaching our pre-kinder children for over four years. And she was just one of them that I was thinking of, Melody. Um, but we have a whole bunch of women who are wonderfully gifted Bible teachers in the process. So, um, yeah, we, I love the fact that we've got so many kids here who who want to serve. And they're serving all the time. And uh, a lot of times those girls grow up to be women who are leaders in the church. Not leaders with authority over men, but doing what God has gifted them to do. Thank you for the questions. Hope you were blessed today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.